I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land I'm recording from and pay my respects to the Kamaregal people and their elders, past and present. I also acknowledge the traditional owners from all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander lands you are listening from. Hi, my name is Sarah Malik and I am your host for the SBS Book Club. This week's book club pick is Sunbirds by Mirandi Riwau and it's absolutely enthralling and luscious. Set in World War II in the Dutch East Indies, Sunbirds starts dramatically with a plane crash on the eve of the Japanese invasion of Java. It tells the story of Anna, a wealthy mixed-race daughter of a Dutch colonial plantation owner and her Dutch pilot Beyonce, Matthias. Also featured are two Indonesians who work on the plantation, housekeeper Dia and her freedom fighter brother Sijit. The book explores how their four lives intersect as war breaks out. A little about Mirandi. Mirandi is the author of Stone Sky Gold Mountain, which won the 2020 Queensland Literary Award and the ARA Historical Novel Prize. It was also shortlisted for the Stella and Miles Franklin Award. What I love about Mirandi's work is how she centres her story, especially women on the margins who are often labelled by society. Her short story collection, The Burnished Sun, includes the story Anna the Javanese and the novel The Fish Girl, both taking minor female characters written about by colonial writers and giving them main character energy. The Fish Girl won the Caesar Viva La Novella Prize and was also shortlisted for the Stella. Welcome to the show, Mirandi. Oh, thank you for having me, Sarah. Can you tell us where the idea for this book came from? So my father's Indonesian Chinese. I often sort of write in that field, like whether it's like Mina, who was in the fish girl, a fishing village girl from Indonesia, or growing up, I guess, in Brisbane or Australia as Eurasian. So I write often from that sort of point of view. And then I'd finished writing Stone Sky and I was over at my cousin's place. It was before COVID and we were having dinner and she had another guest there, a friend of hers, who turned out to be also Eurasian, but quarter, I think he was quarter Indonesian. And his father was the son of a pilot, a KLM pilot who'd worked in Indonesia while it was Dutch East Indies before independence. And he was telling me about how when his father was a baby, they were rushed out of Dutch East Indies when the Japanese were invading um, with half an hour to spare. So his father was a KLM pilot, was sort of absorbed into the Allied forces when the Japanese were approaching. And what happened is the pilots asked if they could get their families out. So a lot of the families were rushed to Broome. A lot of Australians don't realise what happened in Broome, how the the Japanese attacked Broome as well, and a lot of these people fleeing Dutch East Indies um, died in that attack. So anyway, he was telling me about this, a KLM pilot, and I was sitting there thinking, you know, I write historical fiction and I belong to a writer's group. And at the writer's group, we were talking about how you know, like people love historical fiction, maybe a bit of a romance. I sort of write in that that sort of field of, you know, the Eurasian kind of experience. Anyway, so I just ran with it. I almost immediately I, I had sort of the kernel of a story about, a you know, a Dutch pilot and who, you know, him having to get his loved one out of Indonesia. Mm. So the lesson is always go to family parties and always listen to family <laughs> stories. And the writer in you is just That's like right. writing this all down in the back of your mind. Like speaking of romance, it's a very sexy book. I mean, there's a right. scene where um, Anna pricks her finger and her love interest sucks <laughs> 
her finger, uh, the blood, and that was so hot. Like that must have been fun to write those scenes. It was fun, but also you always wonder if you're going to pull it off, I guess, or if people are going to be like, oh, no, cut that when you're actually writing it. But, yeah, I don't even know where that came from. I love it. I love it. Um, I mean, the book, it has like a lot of deep themes and a lot of it is that kind of interplay between colonialism and sexual politics, you know, that play out in the relationships between the characters, you know, and like in the book, you depict how colonisation creates all these complex layers in society. And a lot of that has to do with how the colonisers treat women. And a big focus in the book are Indos or Eurasians, people who are kind of products of of mixed marriages. And some Indos like Anna, they inherit like the privileges of the Dutch because they Mm. are the daughter of of a marriage. Um, And then others, um, like the character who's in kind of a separate novella in the book, she inherits stigma and exclusion as the illegitimate product of a, you know, sexual exploitation. Mm, mm, Can mm. you tell us why you kind of made this parallel such a kind of core and spine of the book? So... Like I said, because I'm Eurasian, I was interested in looking at this character who is part Asian but lives in a world that favours the white, the Dutch. But she's lucky, like you said, she's lucky because her father has uh, recognised her as, as his child so she can be Dutch even though she's part Asian from her mother's side. And I was reading a lot of fiction and memoir and academic work on Eurasians in the Dutch East Indies. And I came across Tanika Helwig, who is an academic in this field of women in the Dutch East Indies, Indonesian or Eurasian. And she wrote this great paper about all the different ways this um, sex worker named Fincher in the 1920s, how she was represented in the court case and in the paper and and also by a sort of more empathetic um, Chinese writer at the time, all these different reflections of this sex worker who'd been murdered by a Dutch fellow. And, and I thought this was a really interesting way of Anna sort of reflecting on her world compared to Feench's world and what was happening in Feench's world. In, and, and so Anna's, um, even though my book said in the 1940s, obviously, She's reflecting on this this case about Fincher and how she's being represented at the same time as the novelette that goes through the novel is sort of more representational of that Chinese writer's more um, sympathetic view of, of Fincher um, from her point of view and, like, how she got to where she was, I guess, like the fish girl, like just sort of looking at how these women get to the positions or get stuck in the positions, dangerous positions that they, they end up in. And, of course, those women... You know, there's many women, in, especially in Southeast Asia to this day, who are still trafficked and still treated in this way. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's that line that she says, if only my father had wed my mother or acknowledged me in some way, I could have pretended to be white and then someone like Garrett would have married me. So it's a real, like, safety issue as well, like your approximation to whiteness in that society. Like, it's it's a survival mechanism to to kind of um, want to be more white. Absolutely. Yeah, there's also a line where Anna says, Anna was careful to mimic those around her until it became a second nature to to her as a chameleon to change its hue, so used to being a spectrum of colours, she sometimes wonders who she really is. <laughs> I think that is the nature of being Eurasian sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, tell me about that because that's such a real preoccupation for you in in your work and kind of this idea of 
being of two languages, being of two cultures, being Mm. of two loyalties and how that plays out. I guess even in the identity of Anna, like the colonial tensions play out in her own self-knowledge as she figures out, you know, where does her loyalty lie? Like, you know, is that something that kind of resonated with you in terms of your own upbringing as a, you know, mixed race person in Australia? I guess for me growing up in Brisbane, as Eurasian, it's like what I was saying, like you're living in this world where you might be brown or half, but it's in a world that favours whiteness, especially probably in the 70s and 80s when I was growing up, less so now, but definitely when I was uh, growing up, there weren't many Eurasian, let alone Asian kids around or fiction or being represented on TV, nothing, nothing. There was a lot of assimilation and, and I was thinking lately, you know, assimilation denotes that you're not, that you're trying to be as white as possible, actually. There's no kind of room in assimilation for keeping the the Asian half or the brown half. So, so yes, I think growing up, I was preoccupied as, as with that as a child, as a Eurasian child, but also I assume or I would think, having read memoirs, that even if you were Indo and Indonesia and you're considered Dutch and went to good schools, there was still like some tensions around not being fully white. You know, for you growing up, like there's so much Indonesian and Dutch that laces the book. Did you grow up speaking Indonesian or how did you connect to that side of your heritage? We were quite connected to it in Indo- in uh, Brisbane because my father was a big part of the Indonesian society here at the time, which was which was small but but big enough for, you know, nice big parties and they would have Independence Day, you know, like little festivals and things. And I remember one year I dressed up as a, you know, as a Javanese girl and was sitting on it with, with kids from, you know, other cultures on the float. And another time we played angklung, which is a type of Indonesian instrument at Town Hall as part of, you know, this sort of multicultural day. So that was all probably around 1980. No, we weren't taught Indonesian at home. I think my dad, my dad was very adventurous. He came here on the Colombo plan to study at UQ here. He came here and he, um, that's where he met mum, but he was always very adventurous and very, although very sort of Chinese Indonesian, he's very attached to that side of his culture. But also I think the adventurous side of him was also quite happy to embrace this sort of new life in Brisbane or Australia as well. He's a very proud Australian as well. For whatever reason, whether it was because he was the father in working or because of assimilation, we didn't learn Indonesian at home. So when I went to uni at Griffith Uni, I learnt it there. And I try wow. to keep it up now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you do have like a very legendary history of talking back to the white man. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> Somerset Mom cancelled, Paul Gauguin cancelled, <laughs> not cancelled, interrogated, interrogated. I'll explain that to the listener. So Mirandi wrote a book, um, The Fish Girl, which basically you know talks back to this short story by Somerset Mom, the four Dutchmen, which kind of feature a side character that is labelled a trollop by Somerset. Somerset Maugham. And and in your book, you know, she becomes Mina, like a fully fleshed character. Hmm. And in Anna the Javanese, another like short story, you really tell the story from the perspective of this young girl who was um, painted by Gorgon and is it fair to say kind of trapped by him? (laughs) Well, I mean, we couldn't know. We couldn't know, Hmm. but there would be aspects of entrapment in that 
I mean, I'm not sure that he would have paid her. She had come from the area of Java, I think maybe Ambon, I'm not sure, Mm. to Paris and apparently she was around 13 or 14. I mean, what options or what sort of choices, opportunities, what sort of power did this girl have? So I guess that's what I would have lent into. Yeah. This talking back to history and these white guys, that kind of animates you, right? Like that's interesting. It really does. It's just sort of trying to look at who's told you this story. Like everything we know about Anna the Javanese is from the point of view of these white artist men who who would go along. So it's a certain class, it's a certain gender, it's a certain culture of person who we have this information from on her. And I think, you know, or like the Somerset Maugham story, I think, you know, and usually I, I love Somerset Maugham, but you've got to sort of have a look at who's telling the story. And I think a lot of the time, especially if you don't have sort of skin in the game, you would just take it with a grain of salt because we know those times were more sexist and racist. We just know it. So you can just read things from back then and go, oh, well, you know, times have changed. But I guess on a personal level, those two stories of those two women affected me more personally, being from that area. So then you can look at it in a new light. You can go, well, Gauguin apparently was really into looking exotic and she was probably a bit of a prop to him. And, you know, and then I looked into her and how she was discarded by this opera singer. She was found like at the train station with a a wooden plaque on her saying to give it to that opera singer, like just, you know, trafficked women. They're trafficked women and women are still trafficked. So I do like to imagine maybe another version of those lives. They had their own lives, but I like to maybe have a look at it in a new sort of feminist, Eurasian light and sort of look at it from maybe her point of view. Yeah. Yeah, her story. I love doing that. (laughs) Yeah, you're you're, you're all about her story. I feel like their spirits are kind of behind you as you're riding going, yeah. Like I said, they're all just versions, which I tried to show in Sunbirds too because we've got like the newspaper accounts, we've got the court accounts, we've got the accounts of like how her father and brother see Fincher, you know, from what they've heard and what they've heard about the man who murdered her. And then we have that, that novelette, which is allegedly from her point of view from Feature's point of view that runs through it. And I guess also having written those other novellas, I realised they're all versions and those women would have had their own lives too. So I guess mm. what I was trying to also depict was that there's that everything, everything we write or fiction, nonfiction, whatever, they're all versions. So that's kind yeah. of the layering I was trying to show in that um, by depicting all those different ways of looking at Feature. Mm. Yeah, and you do that so well. And to recap for readers, like Fincher is this parallel character in the book who, you know, is murdered and we get the newspaper accounts, which are written by men that are filled with this kind of slut shaming and victim blaming. And then we gradually get the story from her point of view, you know, her experiences and that kind of hidden history and voice. That's right. Um, And versions of history are a really big theme in the book. And who I really love is the character of Dia. Like, I absolutely love her. Yeah, she probably turned out to have the the strongest character, I feel. Yeah. yeah. I feel like mm. also because she's the only character who feels like she doesn't need a man to no, aspire in society. Yeah, she wants. She has her own dreams. You know, if you're talking about empowerment, like all these women are trying to find, you know, in a world where they don't have a lot of power, even Anna, who's like well-off, the well-off spoiled daughter, 
you know, in this kind of world or Hermine, you know, the mum and then Dio, who's, of course, the Indonesian servant, they're all having to find what power they can, you know. I think that is the backdrop to, to many women historically is just finding whatever little bits of power you can, whether it's like squirrelling coins away like Anna the Javanese did or, or, you know, like pinching a bit of food like Mina does, like just whatever little or running out at nighttime, you know. I think it's just trying to find whatever little bits of power you can in a world where you don't have much at all, yeah. And however way you can without judgment because you're living in a society that limits you Mm. um, in Mm. so many ways. But, you know, you give Mm. them so much agency as well, like at the same time, which I love. And I really love when Dia says in terms of, you know, her brother who's who's a freedom fighter, who's fighting for like Mm. Indonesian freedom, you know, and she's kind of like neutral about it. You know, she's like Sijit and his friends were fed up being lower Mm. in station than all the other men in Java. But are they really at the bottom or are women? Mm, yes. That's that's a well, mic drop moment. That's the yeah. <laughs> That's funny. That's just how it is, huh? Like and I, I think she could think that. I, I hate I hate historical fiction that's too prescient, you know, like they're mm. making the the characters more feminist than they would have been or, you know, anti racist than they would have been. But I feel that's the kind of simple calculation you could make for yourself, you know. As a, as a woman, as a, as a single woman at that time, a working woman, really. <laughs> yeah. In the book, Dear the Housekeeper, she reads two different works um, and one of them is given to her by the master of the house. Yes, to practice her Dutch. And actually that's based on a real book. It was by this sort of Dutch baron with a very long name and it was translated into English. And it's about, you know, this Dutch fellow who goes to work with his brother on a plantation and the Indonesian servant girl falls in love with him and really wants to be with him and he's struggling against that the whole novel. Like it's just really <laughs> so I do have her sort of reading that going, what the Yes. And and even I think the original cover was like a naked, you know, Javanese girl on the cover, uh, a painting. Yeah. So the actual book is very interesting. The actual book, the the edition I have, it's got many, many, many photos through it from that period. So very, very, you know, informative, but also, yes, <laughs> not great, the actual the actual novel. Oh, my God, I can't believe that's actually based on a real book. Yes, no, it is, yes, <laughs> it totally is. Wow. <laughs> now that you kind of read the book in terms of all the relationships, a lot of those colonialist depictions of, of Asian women as either submissive or femme fatales, mm. it was kind of a way to justify exploiting them it was a way to justify you know basically saying she was asking for it yeah exactly and actually there's a lot of fiction or non-fiction about women you know Eurasian women or Indonesian women who are in those you know situations where they're living with a Dutch man and then when he throws her over they go kill themselves or so there's a lot of these sort of tragic stories because of course what we don't remember is these women were exploited and and very vulnerable and like you said society there had sort of made it that way as well 
But I love how that you contrast that with with Anna, who, you know, she has this kind of real joyful sexual kind of energy as well. <laughs> she so, has a bit of guilt you know, about it. <laughs> yeah, she has. And that guilt comes from internalizing that shame about yeah. women and that women have to act a certain way. And she just follows her impulses. She does. I, well, I think with Anna what it is is she's a brat. <laughs> she's She's been spoiled. But also the wars come along. So Holland's been taken over by Germany. You know, World War II is happening. The Japanese are invading. So she, lots of how she saw her life happening, like she was going to go to Europe. Like So this is what those Dutch girls did. They would go to Europe. They would go to finishing school, maybe travel around, maybe find some man, come home. You know, or stay there. I think she actually would have liked to stay there in Holland. So that was her plan. I think as a girl, it's like getting married. That's what they were taught to expect the whole time. And then the war happens and she can't get there. So then, you know, she's with Matthias. She thinks maybe one day. But meanwhile, he has to go off and do his piloting. Lots of dancers, they were very, very, you know, into like having club dances and roller skating and going swimming and picnics and all that sort of thing, as you can imagine, that sort of expat sort of society. But all that's called off too because all the men have been called to sign up to fight the Japanese who are going to invade. I think circumstances have forced her into looking closer to home, looking at the other side of her uh, being. And, you know, like I think a lot of the things for Anna wouldn't have happened if the wars hadn't happened and she'd just sort of like just kept on going with the original plan. I mean, she would have been in Europe, you know. Yeah. I really love how like her own kind of journey also mimics the reader's journey as well because, you know, it opens up to this really luscious Sinterklaas mm. celebration and there's gin and tonic mm-hmm. and there's jazz mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, this is so beautiful and, and you're <laughs> in the party and, you know, you see Anna, this spoiled brat, and then, you know, as you kind of go forward in the book, you see kind of the darker undercurrents behind mm. all that wealth and mm. and Anna also mm. kind of discovers more about herself as well and so it's like it's just unpeeling gradually like some of the darker layers, yeah. Oh, thank you. That's exactly what I meant to do now that I think about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's just very interesting because of course too you have to remember like the center class party or whatever life was really good for them <laughs> like it was like in the movies it was like appealing and i you know there's still a part of that sort of uh, way of thinking i guess when australians or we go to certain parts of the world on holidays you know it's that same sort of enjoying something that you know somebody else is working hard for you to enjoy i guess you know but yes, but also I did want to then look at like that dark undercurrent of that exploitation, I guess. Yeah. You do that so well. Oh, you thank do you. that so well. It's such a beautiful book. It's like, you know, when you're just looking at a miniature and then you just keep seeing more things and then you just oh, refocus you, it. Sarah. And That's I'm very like kind. and that that is true. Like a lot of us, you know, we do have this blindness, you know, and this self-satisfaction and, you know, in terms of the way we view the way things are and and, and you keep shifting that in the book constantly. And that scene where Anna is looking at a photograph, a photograph that's been in her home forever of her grandfather, who is the plantation owner, and they're sitting proudly on the land. Um, and it is only when Sigit actually points it out that that there's actually a person in the background she hadn't noticed before, which mm. was his ancestor, and mm. and he was bent over, and that was the land that was stolen from him. Yes, yes, 
Yeah, well, I'm glad you enjoyed that part. Um, and that is what I wanted to show. You know, when you hear people talk about ideas or you read or you go to uni, it's just so exciting to, to learn new ideas and have those aha moments that things aren't how maybe you saw them or, you know, you see something in a new way and you're just always going to see it in that new way forever then after that like you you're constantly changing so yeah so I liked that for Anna I guess that was the turning point for Anna how did you like develop all of this like in terms of your own personal life like Mm. did it mimic your own kind of journey to consciousness like did you grew up in white Australia and was there a moment where you were like hang on what is the reality of like my heritage and my relationship to this thing I would say that took a long time. Mum, mum, who's from an Irish English background, of course, she'd already done my degree, like probably in the eighties. Then, if I did it in the nineties, she'd done it. Um, the Asian studies at Griffith herself. Mum was always, always into it, like just cooking and learning Bahasa way before us. Learning cooking from Indonesian women and all the, you know, everything. She really embraced the culture, so it wasn't that it wasn't at home. But I would say, even in the last few years that I've had some epiphanies like I loved Amy Tan say her books because they were so commercially huge about Asian characters, obviously. But apart from that, you don't see yourself represented a lot. When I was growing up, I didn't. And I know one of the festivals had a call out for if anybody wanted to talk on a panel about Little Women because that new movie was out. And I realised what I could have talked about was that, see, I loved Little Women and Good Wives, loved them, you know, Nancy Drew, Barbie, all of them loved them. You know, and I realised that I was always aspiring, Olivia Newton-John just loved her so much, but I was always aspiring to be these girls or women that I would never be, like would never be, could never be already, just born, like could never be. So, you you know, like then you're always feeling a bit not 100%, like there's a bit of lack. Yeah, so I just really realised that, that, you know, the rep- that representation is is important. Yeah, so it's only like even in the last few years, a few months that, you know, things still, still are occurring to me that of the importance of sort of writing in this space. Yeah, and you you start mm-hmm. to unpack that. Or even like the, the idea of, yeah, assimilating and actually you're never going to be similar. Like it's never going to happen. Um, yeah. In that context of a very white context, I mean. Obviously now I think things have changed for the better to a degree. Did you also feel like because of your mixed background that you had that chameleon quality where you would have to shape shift according to your environment? Oh, absolutely. That is absolutely something that I do write about with Anna that that definitely is a reflection of myself. It could be personal as well. I think I'm sort of that type of person who does want to get on with everyone and a bit of a people pleaser, but also that growing up you know, living and working in a world where that does sort of favour certain personal attributes. <laughs> mm. And and it, there's a cost to that. And there's also a benefit because when you're an artist, you can just feed all that dysphoria into your work, right? Well, yeah, now I can. I guess maybe I do wonder, I think 10, 20 years ago, probably my books wouldn't have been published, you know. So mm. there is that as well. Yeah. 
We're nearly wrapping up now, but I guess I'm interested in, you know, you're really interested in history. You're a historical fiction writer. And, you know, with other books, you know, I can see um, other novels by other writers. I can see that sometimes on these themes, there's a real like anger through the pages and there's a real kind of fury and and, and even commentary. Mm. And you're very controlled. Plot is king and the lyricism is (laughs) king. And how do you step back from that anger and just let the story kind of be told. It's probably like um, what my mum says about, you know, with kids, like it's no use screaming at them because they're just not going to hear you. And my mum was always like that with parenting. It was like, mind you, she did shout sometimes, but, you know, but she'd explain that, it, you know, as a parent, that's not necessarily the best way to be, to get your point across. Uh, so maybe there's a bit of that. I feel though sometimes may, maybe, I'm, and it wouldn't have been on purpose, but when I say wrote the fish girl, there must be some sort of tension. Like maybe it's like a simmering fury at the bottom. I don't know. There must be some sort of tension because I think people do start that book and know it's not going to be happy. I think I would probably sit with it. You're right. Plot is king for me and I do like a story. I do like it to work out. I'm not just like delving into character or, you know, like ideas. I, I, I love a plot. I mean, you are a legendary planner. You've talked about how you plan your books and your <laughs> research is meticulous. And I'm in the book and I'm in that world. Like it's just the plants and the food and everything is so kind of um, sensuous and, and named and, and it's really beautiful. And what was that research process like for you? Did you go back to Indonesia mm. to to write this book? I always love to actually go to the place it's set and see it how my characters would see it. And, of course, like I said, I've, I've, you know, been to Indonesia many times, studied there, blah, blah, blah. But I think it's important to just go see it as my characters might have seen it or, or really concentrate maybe on things that the Dutch would have seen at the time, that sort of thing. And then probably when I was about two, oh, halfway through, two-thirds of the way through, I did get to go back to Java and, and then I did some writing there and I did it at the Punchak Pass Resort, which is where Matthias is recuperating from an illness. Then you can see it very much in the, you know, that sort of second half of the book. But what was interesting is like even with the tea plantation, so I had to sort of like colour in this tea plantation. So that came from sort of what I read of other plantations in those memoirs and that sort of thing. But what was really interesting, where I said it and where, it, you know, like what it looked like and, you know, how it was near that mountain, but and my dad's from that area. So when we went back, we did go to a, to look at a tea plantation that was there and it was just so, so, so like what I'd written that it was just amazing. Like, you know, it had this big white house, this old pond. It had, um, you know, where the plantation was and it was still a tea plantation but not obviously owned by the Dutch anymore. And then behind it was the mountain, was that same mountain in that same area, which of course is where I said it, like I said, in that sort of Chapanas area where my father's from. But yeah, no, it was uh, a relief. (laughs) It It actually was very like my... um, my made-up Sarawangi, yeah. That's all, that's quite spooky. Like that was just a synchronicity that happened. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, yeah. incredible. But I guess it was sort of built from the research as well. 
Yeah. Oh, wow. Thank you so much, Mirandi, for this beautiful, lyrical, incredible book. Um, I just devoured it and spent just days just swimming in this. And it just thank it you, was just beautiful. Thank you so much, Mirandi. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Next week on the SBS Book Club, we have Gurunji Wakaya author Deborah Dank with her memoir, We Come From This Place a breathtaking ode to country and sacred connection to land and ancestry told through a mosaic of vivid episodes. Don't miss it.